Welcome to the Ordinary Doula Podcast with Angie Rozier, hosted by Birth Learning, where we help prepare folks for labor and birth with expertise coming from 20 years of experience in a busy doula practice, helping thousands of people prepare for labor, providing essential knowledge and tools for positive and empowering birth experiences. Welcome to the Ordinary Doula Podcast. I'm Angie Rozier, your host. We are hosted by Birth Learning. Today, we have an awesome guest with us, somebody who is a guest speaker at all of our doula trainings, and I love learning from her every every single time. Um, she's going to... Sh- I'll let her introduce herself and a little bit about what she does. She is doing some amazing work and making great changes for everyone as she educates not only providers and people, but um, the birthing world about some very awesome, simple things we can do to make things better. So Brittany, I'm going to turn the time over to you to introduce yourself and then we'll talk about what our topic will be today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so my name is Brittany Sharp McCollum. I am Blossoming Bellies Holistic Birth Services based out of the greater Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. Um, I'm in South Jersey, just over the bridge from Philadelphia, but all my in-person classes and workshops are um, taught out of Philadelphia. Um, let's see, I've been doing this work for over 16 years. Um, I'm an educator, a doula, lactation counselor, pelvic uh, biomechanics educator, and my focus is really on labor physiology, advocacy during both prenatal care as well as labor and into postpartum, um, and then understanding pelvic biomechanics, which is how we can create that space in the pelvis to keep labor progressing, to decrease intervention rates, to restore autonomy to the person giving birth. Um, I work with expecting parents. I teach a lot of childbirth education, um, and then also I'm a doula as well, so I go with people in labor um, and provide support. And then I also get to work with perinatal professionals, which is a really cool thing to be able to kind of see things from both sides. Um, I get to travel all over to do workshops on incorporating effective movement into labors with and without an epidural. I also do some workshops on like labor physiology, um, uh, evidence-based decision-making and so forth. So yeah, so I love what I do. Um, I got into this work after my first son was born, so he's 17 now. And really my goal in getting into this was to help people know their options, to know how to effectively communicate with their providers and to kind of better understand how to navigate the system in which we're birthing. Um, The system is really set up for a one-size-fits-all approach and, you know, a lot of our terrible statistics um, reflect that. And I think one of the things that can make a big difference in terms of outcomes is providing more of an individualized type of care to people laboring. Um, And so that's really kind of at the heart of what I do to both, you know, provide education to parents as well as work with professionals is to kind of take more of an individualized approach to people's experiences um, so that they can feel more in control of the process and in control of the decisions that are made during the process. Um, and also we can see that reflected in in better outcomes and better statistics. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what I do. And I have four kids now. So I have my oldest, who I mentioned, is 17, and then 11, 8, and 2 um, as well. So full house over here. Awesome. <laughs> I love that you have a caboose. I've had, I have a yeah. couple cabooses myself. <laughs> <laughs> so fun to do it all over again. Yes. With the different eyes. So mm, yes, awesome. yes. So today we're going to be talking with Brittany about three tips for labor progress. And I'm excited to hear what these are. 
So yeah. please tell us, share tips with yeah. us for labor progress. So when we were talking about topics, I was really thinking like I, labor progress is so important, right? We talk about this all the time. I think as educators, as doulas, we talk about this, but a lot of the things that we hear are the same, which is super helpful still. But I was like, what kind of tips could I provide that might be a little different than what people are getting somewhere else? So the tips that I have are maybe a little bit more unique than what you might get out of your like average social media account or something like that. But I think these are tips that are really helpful and shouldn't really support people no matter how they are choosing to labor with or without an epidural, induction, spontaneous labor, whatever. So my very first uh, tip is going to be to understand the place where you're birthing. So this means understanding not only their statistics, but their individual practices, um, the volume of births that they do, the number of rooms that are available, what your individual provider group does, like what is their common practice, because the more information that we have that can provide insight into maybe why certain interventions may be done more often or why people may be given more or less time in labor. All of this is going to really help us figure out how to navigate that system a little more easily. So for example, I've been bringing this study up a lot recently. It's come up recently in a lot of conversations I've had, but um, there is this study that was done by Neil Shah. Um, he's a Harvard professor and OBGYN. And he did a study that looked at um, labor and delivery wards around the country. And the study was was trying to determine whether the volume of births that were done at different hospitals correlated to the number of rooms that were available. And what the study found was that there was no correlation between the volume of births that a hospital was doing and the number of rooms that are available. And that might seem like, well, what does that matter? It matters because if we have a birthplace that's doing a high volume of births and they have very few rooms available, there is definitely going to be a greater push for intervention. There's going to be less opportunity for time in labor. And therefore, we might need to think outside of the box in terms of ways to encourage labor to progress. And that might be where you find those like more kind of um, common tips, things like stay home until active labor, that sort of thing, or, you know, get an epidural at uh, X point in labor, you know, that, that those sort of tips. Um, so when we understand things like the volume of births that are done at our hospital, the number of labor rooms that are available, what our care provider typically expects in labor, and we can find those things out by asking lots of questions prenatally, then we have a better understanding of what's going to be expected from us during the labor process, and we can better gauge what other tools we're going to use to try to encourage either labor progress or to maybe postpone an epidural till a certain point or, um, you know, consider staying home until a certain point in labor. We can better utilize those more common tips if we understand what's happening in the place where we're birthing. And then, you know, I mentioned like a hospital that might have like a high volume of births and very few rooms available. There's also, you know, the flip side of it where you might have a hospital that has many rooms available and does a very low volume of births. And then there might not be as much pressure to move things along quickly in labor. It might make more sense to get the epidural at the point where you feel like you need it rather than trying to wait till a certain point in labor. The epidural can often slow things down. So sometimes we hear, well, you know, you don't want to get that too early on because it could slow things. But what actually what a lot of research is starting to tell us is that whether somebody has an intervention after getting an epidural, an intervention like augmentation of labor after getting an epidural may have less to do with the epidural and may actually have more to do with how their individual provider practices. So that's what's so I think so interesting about understanding where we're birthing and what's common among our care provider because it totally could impact things like when we decide to head to the hospital, when we decide to get our epidural, if we have a better understanding as to like what's actually happening in that space.
So that would be my first tip is ask those questions so that you can better navigate the, the place in which you're birthing and the care team that you're that you're using for support. That is fascinating because I think um, <laughs> in my practice a lot, you know, over the years, some people want to birth at the biggest, shiniest, newest hospital, right? Which might yeah. have a high volume, but that may impact so many things where others might um, choose to give birth. And I think people like bigger, they think bigger is better. Um, mm -hmm. There are some hospitals that I've worked in over the years. I think I've been in nearly 40 hospitals at this point. And some just are a quiet little place to have a baby. And yeah. so their staff isn't massive. Um, people oftentimes look at the NICU status, right? Like mm -hmm. the after baby care and what, what level of care the hospital can provide with, with no real risk of having to use a NICU. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people may choose their hospital space as much as insurance allows for choice, I guess, based sure. on that. But but you're right. I have seen some really country hospitals, like rural hospitals, be pretty amazing or not. Um, yeah. Some yeah. of those are a little bit backwards in, in policy. Um, and I, I've also, just this last year, it's been fascinating when I have folks who are scheduled for an induction. They, if at a busy hospital, sometimes they are on call. Like they mm. have to, like, well, well, we'll call you when a room opens up. Um, and one of the people's calls, it was seriously like 2.30 in the morning and she was not oh expecting it. I don't think her phone was on. She was nine months pregnant and mm. missed the call and therefore missed the induction. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. She missed her own induction. Like, oh, you know, time's up. We got to <laughs> give it to somebody else. Um, but I think that's fascinating. Oh my gosh. And, and Brittany, tell us too. How do, how do you go about asking these questions? I think if you were to ask your run-of-the-mill provider at an appointment, they're not going to have those percentage, you know, they're not going to have that information re readily available. What's a good way yeah. to go about finding this information? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think we have a lot more resources at our disposal now than people did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, I think I, I, would, I would maybe say, take this with a grain of salt, but I think going on Facebook groups and asking people what their experiences have been at hospitals in the area is, is helpful to an extent. <laughs> I right. mean, I always tell people like, you know, have to be willing to let some things go in one ear and out the other. But if you're trying to find out what's common at different hospitals in your area, or let's say you have like three hospitals that you're going to be choosing from to give birth, and maybe you have like given them a call or you went to the um, orientation and you ask some questions, but maybe the answers weren't that specific or they didn't know, like you said, then I might actually suggest tapping into some of those Facebook groups or even like um, doulas, you know, doulas are going to give you really hopefully good, solid information without a whole lot of bias, you know, right. like actual information. Whereas I think sometimes when you're, you know, asking people, they tend to share their stories more than necessarily the information that you're looking for, which sometimes can be challenging to hear as a pregnant mm -hmm. person. Um, but tapping into those community resources, like asking doulas, interviewing different doulas, and as you're interviewing them, ask them, like, what has their experience been at different hospitals? Um, also, though, especially early on in the process where maybe, you know, maybe a doula isn't yet on somebody's radar, it might be helpful to reach out to, like, community resources, like um, Facebook groups of other expecting families, but also other resources you might already be using, maybe chiropractors, um, or massage therapists. Oftentimes, if somebody is a massage therapist, they might work with prenatal clients and they might have a little bit of insight to provide. Um, but it never hurts to also like just set up a consultation with someone like a doula where maybe you just pay them for an hour of their time just to kind of sort through the options that are available to you because they'll definitely be able to provide you with some, some solid insight. 
I also think, though, that starting early in your prenatal care, asking questions, just bringing maybe five really most most pertinent questions to you um, to each prenatal visit, and just like opening up those doors of communication is really important. And if a provider says, "Well, I'm not sure what our statistic is," you could always say, "You know, could you give me a guess? Like, what do you think your your practice's statistic is on this? Like, if you had to guess." Um, and then you could also say, "Like, well, where can I find this information? Can you point me in the direction of the right person to give me this statistic?" Um, so, yeah. So I think. Uh, you know, using the community resources that are available and really being willing to like ask questions at prenatal visits, but not just settle for a I don't know or yes or no. Try to ask those open-ended questions um, and really have conversations rather than being just like a list of things that you're asking. Mm, I love that. Go prepared with questions. I think yeah. like we know hospital systems track everything, right? They yeah. keep amazing <laughs> statistics on things, but mm -hmm. getting access into in a format that into people who you know use it to make decisions um, i think other um things we can check out is like not or health departments of your state yeah. or your county your local health departments um could be interesting as well for your regional statistics in general maybe not to a specific yeah. facility but yeah i think that's that's a lot of good education people could gain um, and i think i totally agree doulas get this bird's eye view of so mm. many birthplaces and yeah we get to see the providers in the trenches. We get to see, you know, what certain providers' mm -hmm. behaviors are like when they, at delivery time and uh, what the nursing, the culture of the nursing staff is like. Um, yeah. So yeah, doulas can be a great resource for that. I love that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a lot of value in hearing the stories of other people that have given birth. The only reason I say take it with a grain of salt is that sometimes we hear bits and pieces of people's stories that maybe are their perspective on what happened without all of the details. And sometimes that can really affect us in pregnancy and make us like feel more scared or anxious or something like that. So we want to be careful about that. But also I think, you know, if, if you hear overwhelmingly of like negative stories about X hospital, well then maybe that's going to impact your decision to give birth there. And that can be helpful too. So just tapping into those resources is helpful. I was thinking like along the lines of community resources and then you were like the, you know, the health department, like, yeah, that would actually, those that's would too, be good places. There's a lot. Sorry. It's interesting. I was just having a, I was working on, I'm working on some research for a, a group right now and, uh, how to decrease the cost of maternal maternity mm -hmm. care, um, specifically with NICUs. But there, there's a hospital we're looking at. Great hospital, awesome set of midwives. Like it, it's a good culture from a doula standpoint. But they had for several years they were pushing visits to the NICU for their bottom line, right? So their parameters of like, here's the babies that need to go to the NICU got really narrow. So, you know, maybe at another hospital, the baby with this respiratory rate or this APGAR score, or whatever, was fine to stay in room with the parent. But um, at this hospital, they narrow their parameters to increase their bottom line because NICUs, oh my gosh, they can make a lot of money when a baby's in a NICU wow. for any period of time. So it's, I think digging down to that is, uh, you know, that's in the responsibility of the consumer, the information's out there um, and, and dig yeah. into it a little bit and find, I love that. I love, we could do a whole visit on that. <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I know you've heard this saying before, I think it, we hear it in the dual community all the time is that people spend more time like researching how to renovate their bathroom than they do researching about their birth. And a lot of times people are like, well, I love my OB, so I'm just going to go where my OB catches babies, which is a good starting point, but your OB may very well not be the person that catches your baby. Oh, and then all the time are, <laughs> that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then you are, you know, subjected to people that you don't have relationships with. And now it's like, you know, you could have gone somewhere, somewhere else and had maybe a more positive experience um, and developed a relationship with the provider. So 
Yeah, we've got to kind of start thinking outside the box a little bit in terms of where we choose to give birth and really understanding that that place of birth that we're that we're headed to. So perfect. Yeah. Great tip. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, what's yeah. next? Yeah. So <laughs> next, um, and this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So this is redundant for you, I'm sorry, but move often. Good. Frequency mm -hmm. of movement is so important. And like we we say all the time, you know, people think that if they have an epidural, they can't move, could not be further from the truth. Movement needs to be part of all labor experiences. Um, and we're not just talking about like, you know, big movements like all fours or squatting. We're talking about simply doing things in any capacity to shift pelvic space. So changing how the thighs are positioned, changing how the lower back is rounded or arched, creating asymmetry um, on one side and then asymmetry on the other side. Asymmetry could be side to side, it could be um, front to back, it could be up and down, there are so many options. And if we think about utilizing props, particularly with an epidural, things like the peanut ball, the squat bar, um, the cub if that's available where people are birthing, then we actually can really change up the position pretty significantly. But even without a whole bunch of fancy props, you can still do different things with your legs. You can still do different things with the angle of the hospital bed. Um, and if somebody's unmedicated, then they can move in whatever position feels right to them. And sometimes I find that when people don't have an epidural, they have a tendency to find a position that's comfortable and stay there for a long time. <laughs> um, so even in a position that's comfortable, let's think, how can we shift the thighs a little bit? Can we stagger the legs? Could we open the thighs out? Could we tuck the thighs in? Could we, um, you know, elevate a knee up on a, a yoga block or a folded pillow or something like that, creating some type of movement? And I would suggest every five contractions which I know sometimes people are like, well, that sounds really frequent. Well, it depends on where you are in labor. In early labor, five contractions could be like every 30 minutes or every hour even. And most people are moving their body in some way every 30 minutes to 60 minutes, you know, normally, even, you know, especially in pregnancy. So doing that in labor shouldn't be a stretch. Um, and then as things progress into labor, um, you know, like you move into the, let's say, the transition phase where contractions are coming every two to three minutes. Well, that could be changing position every 10 to 15 minutes. But it's not that we're necessarily like exhausting ourselves with position changes. We're just focusing every five contractions. I'm doing something subtle but different than what I was doing before. Um, and that's, again, like super beneficial with or without an epidural, induced labor, spontaneous labor, and not forgetting to keep moving during pushing because mm -hmm. so many times people get into one position and stay there for a long time. And right. movement needs to be part of pushing too. Babies are still working their way down and out. So we need to keep changing that space for them. Yeah, I love that. And movement is such, a, when I ask my clients what tools they want to use during labor, um, movement is one of the top tools, both for comfort yeah. and it has a very practical purpose too. So mm -hmm. movement is good yeah. all the way around. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I would add to that too, um, movement, moving rhythmically with the contraction. Um, so not only like changing up the position, but also when you're having the contraction, rocking your hips side to side or rocking, doing pelvic tilts like front to back or if they, if someone is in a lunge position, like leaning into and out of that lunge, or like um, you know, we talk about a lot with the peanut ball, moving the peanut ball when it's between the legs, so like rocking the peanut ball, circling it, so that we're incorporating some rhythmical movement during the contraction. So when when the uterus is squeezing around the baby and the baby's incrementally moving down, we're shifting that space for the baby to make the most out of every contraction. So that's an important piece of it, not just changing position often, but actually incorporating rhythmical movement with the contraction. Yeah, That was like a two for one tip. <laughs> Love it. We'll take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Perfect. Okay. What's tip yeah. number three? Okay. So my third tip, and this is another one that's I think a little bit outside the box because I'm trying to not give you the same tips you hear everywhere else. Um, but this would be to make sure that your primary support person is well educated about birth. Um, I know it's probably like, well, how the heck does that relate to labor progress? It relates in a huge way because if they understand the physiological labor process, what labor looks like from the outside at different phases, um, what people do, how they respond to their contractions, then they're going to be better able to understand why it might be a good idea to stay home until active labor is established. They might be better able to tell when someone's in early labor versus active labor. So they can just be a better kind of guide for the process and be a lot more calm in their approach if they have that education behind them. Um, sometimes people will ask me, you know, does, does my but does my partner come to birth class with me? Yes, <laughs> absolutely, because they're going to need to have all of this knowledge because if they have zero knowledge about birth or only what they've seen in TV shows and movies, they're probably going to be freaking out when you're in labor. And yes. that makes everybody <laughs> feel more stressed and they're going to head to the hospital a lot earlier than they were going to otherwise. And then as soon as they get there, if things aren't moving along, they're going to have to make a decision. Do they head back home where everybody was stressed and freaking out or do they stay and then have that pressure to augment labor or you know even induce depending on where they are in the process. So having a partner that understands the labor physiology is huge. But not just labor physiology, I think uh, the partner also needs to understand how they can be a support person during labor. So the comfort techniques that they can help employ, the way that they can provide guidance for movement. And you know things that are physical like counter pressure and massage are great to understand too. But if somebody doesn't want to be touched, they also have to have other things in their toolbox. Like they need to be the reminder to go to the bathroom frequently, the reminder to stay hydrated. They need to offer snacks here and there because research totally supports being able to eat and drink freely in labor with or without an epidural. Um, and again, like most people don't know that if uh, if they're not actually seeking out like education about birth. So a support person that is well-versed um, in the labor process and what their role looks like is important. And then a big piece of that too is Having discussions in advance about what so the person that's giving birth, like what their expectations of their support person are, and then like talking openly about whether that was what the support person thought they were going to be doing. Right. Because, right? Because sometimes people are not aligned. They think they are, but then when they actually start talking about it, they realize, oh, wow, like we're not on the same page. You're um, expecting so to do the, what? Right. Having those conversations early on in pregnancy um, to the best of your ability, if you don't necessarily have a whole lot of knowledge just yet, but having those conversations, taking a birth class together so that then the conversations can continue and then starting to maybe even write down a birth plan, whether you actually plan to hand that to your provider or not, but together, like writing down your preferences, talking about what the partner's role is going to look like, um, what the expectations are on both sides. I think that's really important. And I know, again, like how does that relate to labor progress? Because if you feel like you're not being supported well during labor, that is totally going to make you start to feel overwhelmed by the process. And then that engages the thinking brain and then the thinking brain overpowers the primal brain and that's releasing oxytocin and the labor process can slow down. Then we can wind up in a situation where we're accepting interventions that may not have been necessary and then that brings potential risk. So if we have a solid support team around us that is knowledgeable and educated and feels confident in their role, then it can put us at ease as we're laboring, which can help to allow those hormones to flow and keep labor progressing. So it does all tie into labor progress. <laughs> yes, it does. And I think too, the yeah. experience of the partner, um, we, we don't, 
oftentimes we don't give that enough credit, the partners having experience. And I think a well-prepared partner is going to have some tools to use, going to understand and be able to anticipate because I'm sure you can say the same, but a lot of times partners will have birth trauma. Um, And as a doula, you know, we want to provide, we want to, excuse me, we want to prevent that for anyone. Um, But when partners are well-prepared, that can be a a great tool and make it easier for both of them, both of their experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a series of surveys that were done in California called the Listening to Mothers surveys. And one of the things that they looked at was um, birth satisfaction, which is so interesting because so much research does not take into account birth satisfaction. Um, And they actually found that when partners were more involved in the laboring process in terms of providing support and being part of decision making, that it improved birth satisfaction for the partner and the person giving birth. Um, And birth satisfaction, like that's huge. Birth is such a life-changing transformational event that to, to kind of ignore the emotional side of it is really unfortunate because it has the potential to like either create trauma that you then have to work through in the postpartum or more ideally to create this empowering experience that you can kind of look back on and be like, yeah, that might've been totally crazy and and hard, maybe the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but like, wow, I totally did that. And I feel really great coming out of it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's often not something that we do alone. Like it, it, our, our, our perspective on our experience has a lot to do with the type of support that we had surrounding us. And again, though, also to tie it back to partners, like partners feel more satisfied with the experience mm-hmm. when they feel like they had tools to use and felt confident in their yeah, role. They, don't, they didn't feel helpless, but they're a part of yeah. a positive part of the process. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that I, can and be that a emotion, hard thing. To, go ahead. That emotional piece too, our systems are not set up to address emotional needs very yes. well anyway during labor they're you know they're all about the the medical needs the the life and death of the situation but not yeah. the because we sit with that you know anyone who delivers a baby sits with that experience for the rest of their lives so the emotional part i mean that's a doula's you know kind of one of our specialties of course but <laughs> yep. but even folks without doulas can go in much better prepared and have a hopefully a better emotional and physical experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it's a hard thing, I think, for for partners to feel helpless. Um, and it's a hard thing for people that are laboring to, like, feel like their partner is, like, kind of feeling helpless. Like, it's a hard, mm-hmm. that's a hard dynamic. One of the things that I talk a lot about in, in birth classes is how even if you're at a point in labor as a partner where you feel like you're doing nothing, like nothing, quote, unquote, right, just simply by being there and like not leaving their side, like you are there, should they need anything, you're doing everything right. Like that, sometimes that is all it is. And like the second you leave the room, everything's gonna fall apart. So you need to stay right there. (laughs) Um, But like there's so much value in just this, just that simple presence, even if that partner is like, well, you know, I can never get the back rub right, or she doesn't want any of the water I'm offering. Well, that's all right. Like just simply being there, she knows you're there. That's so, so important. Yeah. And I think being yeah. present, not just physically present, but completely present, right? Emotionally mm. present, yeah. um, being attuned to those needs, which sometimes that, you know, I've had partners, I love it when they say this, like labor's boring. Like, you know, <laughs> This is, it's hard to be patient for a day or two sometimes, hard. but yeah, that, yeah. that completely present is, is a huge tool. So what, yeah, is, what a great tip, Brittany. I love <laughs> hey. that. And those three tips are so different from each other, which oh, is good. Awesome. I love it. That's like, what I was all, aiming for. 
they're all hitting on important pieces for folks to know about and prepare for. So yeah, yeah. And then hopefully you can tie in the other more common tips like, you know, staying home until active labor and things like that. You can find those things anywhere. So yeah, I <laughs> love these there's something a little more insightful. Okay, state them one more time. Give us two more okay. time. So our first one is truly understand the place where you're birthing. So that means not only like, you know, oh, it, it's on like, you know, Spruce Street or whatever. No, like we need to understand actually like what's happening in that place. How What is their volume of births? How many rooms do they have available? What is my provider's kind of common way of practicing? So really gaining insight specifically into the place where you're birthing. So that could be statistics. It could also be talking with doulas and other community resources um, about, you know, what is actually happening within those walls. So that's a huge one, truly understanding the place where you're giving birth. The next one is move often. I usually suggest every five contractions, but also not only moving um, frequently like that, but also focusing on rhythmical movement within each contraction to really maximize the effect of position changes. Um, and then the last one is make sure that your support person is well-educated when it comes to birth, that they understand the physiology, that they have a toolbox full of ways to help you manage the labor discomfort, um, and also a whole toolbox full of advocacy techniques as well. Um, and hopefully, based on you know having that good solid foundation of information, they feel confident in their role um, as a support person also. So all of those things will help with labor progress. Like movement, like physiologically movement helps with labor progress, but the other two pieces are a little bit more of that emotional side of things, which is going to help the process to unfold in a way that is positive and empowering, um, but also literally to help keep the process unfolding so that that big thinking brain doesn't have to get in the way and overanalyze things in labor, but instead, you feel comfortable in the place where you're birthing, you feel comfortable with the choices that you've made, and also you have a support person that's by your side that is, has a full toolbox ready to, to um, you know, ready to use for your labor, and also they feel really confident in that role. So that helps that person that's laboring to feel a lot more at ease and let all those good hormones flow. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for these great <laughs> tips. That's going to help our awesome. listeners be able to have that positive, empowering birth experience, which is so important for yeah. us that we want everyone to have um, that kind of experience. So, yeah. Brittany, thank you. Tell us again where we can find you. Sure. Thank you for having me today. Um, you can find me on social media at Blossoming Bellies Birth. So I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And then you can also check out my website, which is BlossomingBelliesBirth.com. And there's lots of resources on there from webinars, many of which are free, to um, childbirth classes. We have in-person classes in Philadelphia. We have live virtual classes, which people join from all over, and then um, a bunch of self-paced courses as well. And then I have workshops for perinatal professionals on there too. So lots of good stuff to check out on there. Yep. Great resources. Thank you for the work you. you do in our community. It's important. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Ordinary Doula Podcast with Angie Rozier, hosted by Birth Learning. Episode credits will be in the show notes. Tune in next time as we continue to explore the many aspects of giving birth. <laughs>